Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 250. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back again. Wow, 250 episodes. Holy crap. It's a milestone episode, and we deserve a little fun, do we not? And that's what I've been trying to bring you the last few weeks, especially in quarantine. Take your mind off of things, give you some entertainment, give you some great conversations here. I've got more coming with some cool people who are doing great work. We've talked baseball, we've talked beer, we've talked pro wrestling, and that pro wrestling one in particular, that was Scott Keith. As I told him in that episode, he is probably one of three people whose words I have read the most on the internet. The other two, I can't talk to one, it's Roger Ebert. I would have loved to talk to him, oh my god. I've read his book, Life Itself, it's gorgeous. The other is Drew McGarry, and Drew is my guest once again here on the John of All Trades podcast. Now, this is actually Drew's second tour of duty on the show. He was actually on almost three years ago on episode 139, and that was when he was doing his publicity tour for The Hike, a book that I adored. It's fantastic. It's amazingly weird. It's super funny, and he does an unreal job of sticking the landing on the ending, which is just super important. It's great. It's Twilight Zone-esque. You go, whoa, no way. It makes you rethink the entire book. Now, I hate even saying that, but this book is three years old. We'll all survive. Now, for that, I actually had to go through his publicist at his publisher. His new book, Point B, is self-published. So I had Drew's email address. I go, hey, Drew, you want to come back on the show? Let's talk about the new book. Deadspin has closed. You've had a massive brain hemorrhage since then. We've got plenty to talk about that my listeners haven't heard before. And he just wrote me back right away. He goes, sure. How about tomorrow? And I go, hell yes. I feel like Hannibal from the A-Team. I love it when a plan comes together. But Drew was just super gracious with this time. He was more than willing to talk about Deadspin. He was more than willing to talk about his head injury. And we spent a lot of time talking about the book. Now, Drew is absolutely one of my favorite people on the internet. I've read virtually everything he's ever done. I have not read the book Men With Balls. I will give that caveat. But I've read The Postmortal. I've read The Hike. I've read Someone Could Get Hurt. And I'm in the middle of reading Point B. Last week when I did this interview, I hadn't had it yet. I'm a little bit of the way into it now, and I'm already hooked. It's fantastic. There's just something about Drew that I connect with. And I suspect if you're listening to this right now, that's probably true for you too. Drew has 177,000 Twitter followers. He wrote for Deadspin forever. He helped found Kissing Susie Colbert. He wrote for GQ. He's written across so many different publications. And I would argue, if your new Christmas tradition does not include the Hater's Guide to the Williams-Sonoma catalog, you are doing Christmas wrong. So what can I say? It's episode 250. We're all locked in quarantine. Let's have some fun. Let's have some fun with one of my favorite people. Drew McGarry is my guest. What can I say? You're already here. You love his work. We're going to get to him in just a second. But first, because it's episode 250, got to pay a quick bill. This is going to be super fast. My sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. If you were doing anything online, if you were running a campaign, if you were selling a good, selling a service, promoting some sort of social cause, 4Degrees can help you do it better. They will get your message in front of the people who need to see it most. They will do it at a cost that's very attractive. They'll build you a website, they'll help you get the messaging right, and then they will deploy the strategies necessary so that people see whatever it is you're doing most effectively. 
I'm proud that they've been with me for 250 episodes. They've designed my website. They offer me all my tech support. And I'm just thrilled that this is my sponsor. They helped the John of All Trades podcast go, and I am infinitely grateful to work with them. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Now, that's the only plug, because on the other side of this, we've got Drew McGarry. He is currently with Gen Magazine, formerly of Deadspin. He is author of Men With Balls, The Postmortal, The Hike, Someone Could Get Hurt, and the new novel, Point B, available on Amazon. You can find links to that in the show notes or on the companion blog piece at johnofalltrades.us. And his episode starts right now. No, I don't, I don't do it because it's just easier that way. Because I never have to worry about someone on Twitter saying they're going to come murder them or any of that stuff. Right. People, people tend to be very cavalier about it. And my kids will be cavalier themselves about it. You know, like my daughter's on TikTok and stuff like that. Sure. But I wanted to give her the freedom to control her own online identity. I didn't want to be the person to do it. And, and as much as I like roast her online and all that stuff. But I wasn't going <laughs> to. Yeah. Do it by name, so it'll be the first thing people Google and all that shit. Well, it's amazing too. Like in your book, someone could get hurt. Their names aren't even in that. Which it's a it's a book about parenting. They aren't, and the the publisher asked if they could be, and I said no. I will be doing another book um, about it, and they're going to get pseudonyms. Oh, nice. Okay, for, for that one, just because it made sense. Because someone could get hurt. For the majority of that book, I only have two kids. I mean, I have three kids now, and, right. and the third kid features into the beginning and end of that book. But I had a boy and a girl, and so we could split into the boy and the girl. That's not as easy when there are two boys yeah. feature prominently. So I'd have to be like my older boy and my younger boy, and it would just be too confusing. So I may as well call them, you know, janky and skanky or whatever the fuck. <laughs> I'm sure they'll appreciate that later. Yep. It's like uh, when I named my cats uh, Butt for like uh... – <laughs> Like I'm doing a Beavis and Butthead bit or and bum hug. So it's funny. We did this three years ago, and we didn't have the luxury of video back then, but now we're all in quarantine, so I don't know about you. I'm on Zoom chats all the de- all day. I feel like other people are on more Zoom chats than me, and I feel uh, like I feel kind of unpopular. Like, hey, these, all these people have these active Zoom social lives, and I like... I do maybe one a week. Yeah, well, no, socially that's about what I do, but I'm doing it like for this show and the other shows I'm producing and stuff. So, you know, that's the other thing is that like I used to do a podcast with David Roth. Love that. And this was before quarantine, but even before quarantine, I you know I work from home. Uh, I have hearing problems, so you know, going out in public is not terribly easy for me at times. Although it's better, a lot better than it used to be. So, like, the podcasting would be like my socializing. <laughs> Right. Every week, I'd be like, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I was just talking with someone, a friend about this now. I can't remember where I was talking. Maybe it was at the Super Bowl. I was like, oh, wait, I was doing a stupid podcast. I was doing something professionally. Yeah, no, <laughs> that happens to me a lot, too. But what's funny, so this is Drew McGarry, obviously, formerly of Deadspin, currently of Gen Magazine, author of how many books now, officially? Uh, Point B is my fifth uh, book and my third novel, so I've written five <laughs> books. Okay. And so we did this three years ago when you were doing the publicity tour for the hike, which was really awesome. And naturally, your reading in Denver happened on the same day as like nine other things for me. So I didn't even get to meet you that night, and I was really pissed about it. That's um, well, you should. <laughs> I have great shame, and I carry it with me always. Mm-hmm. Um, but first official question, and I have a minor bone to pick with you about this. You said Denver smelled like poo. 
Yeah, Denver smelled like uh, cow poop. And someone explained it to me that it depended on the day whether or not the yeah. wind was was drifting in from like cattle fields and stuff like that. Yeah, no. So just northeast of Denver in Weld County is some of the largest feedlots. Well, A, in the state. And Weld County is the third largest agricultural producing county in the entire state. Yeah, that'll do it. So I thought to myself, or not in the entire state, in the entire country. Yeah, that'll do it. (laughs) That'll do it. And before it snows, you can always tell when it's going to snow because everyone's like, oh, God, it smells like Greeley today. So wanted to uh, wanted to set you straight on that if no one else had already done it, just in defense of my poor city. No, I remember that was for why your team sucks, and yep. so you had to find maximum roasters. But I do remember that it was my first time in Denver that was it didn't involve me just doing a layover in D, DIA. Right, yeah. The thing that blew me away was that was the poop smell, but then also on the drive between DIA and Denver downtown, there was nothing. <laughs> and I was like... Yeah, I was like, shouldn't there be some shit here? It's like there was, there was nothing at all. I mean, eventually it'll all turn into exurban strip malls and stuff like that. Right. But I was like, I was floored because I always, I always knew that Denver residents complained about how far away the new airport was, and of course how expensive and big it was. But I figured there was like some measure of civilization between there and Denver, and there isn't. I mean, we can talk about that for a while. The former mayor Federico Pena, who was Secretary of Transportation under Clinton, you didn't know you were going to get a civics lesson here, did you? But uh, his family owned a bunch of the land around where DIA ended up. So what do you know? They put an airport out there, and suddenly it became much more valuable. What? <laughs> Who would have guessed? Yeah, so kind of reminds me of you doing uh, all the bitching about Larry Hogan in your fair state. Yeah, well, the joke's on him now because uh, no one can fly, so the land's worth nothing. So ha! <laughs> so take that. How's that feel? That's right. Um, so how's it been going during quarantine for you? You've, you've got this book coming out. It's already out, and I've got my pre-order. Last time when I talked to you, I had the luxury of reading it first, but I haven't read it yet. That's okay. So, so I'm looking forward to it very much. How's it been going? It's been going good. I mean, it's it's different circumstances, um, not only because of quarantine. It feels a little rough asking people to part with their money right now, uh, you know, when 30 million people plus are unemployed, but also it's self-published. So, you know, this is a book that was not accepted by publishers, but I loved it so much that I published it myself and in fact rushed up the publishing date because of the the virus and because, uh, you know, I sensed that things were not going to improve, you know, in the the next, at least the next couple of months. Like hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm still holding out the faintest hope that, that by fall things will be somewhat back to normal, if anything could be described as normal, right? Yeah. Or anything in the past. But so it's been, it's been different all around in terms of, okay, it's just, it's just not the same circumstances. You know, there's no book tour, there's no publisher right. behind it. I have to be my own publicist. I get to set the price. So that was to some degree. For the paperback, it's more expensive. The digital one, I could charge as much as $10 for the Kindle one. But that seemed unfair to ask right now of people. So I was able to say it at $8. So that that seemed to go over well with people. And people like the book. So really, that's yeah. all that really matters. Well, from what I've read, uh, and you retweet these things, but based on what I've read, it seems awesome. And it seems like people are really reacting to it. And so when you tell me that it was rejected by publishers, that surprises me because the Postmortal did pretty well, right? It, and it's like taught in schools and got picked up for development and TV and stuff, right? The Postmortal did well uh, in terms of, because first of all, it was bought for nothing. The advance for, (laughs) it was my first novel, so it was bought for for $25,000, which, of course, $25,000 is a lot of money. But in terms of publishing, 
And if you think of a book as something you work on for a year and like your year's salary, oh, yeah. well, then all of a sudden it, se- it seems like it's not a terrible amount of money. It earned out that it- advance and it sold 70,000 copies. And it's still, it's had, it's had a long tail and done very, very well. The two books I had after that, I got much more generous advances. They didn't earn out those advances. Really? And I'm, sh- I'm sure publishers... I'm sure publishers are, are aware of that. They have spreadsheets they know. So I think um, so I think that was part of it. But then also, for some reason, it just didn't, my agent bird level said, wasn't getting traction with them. Mm. For whatever reason, it's not always necessarily, and maybe this is just me, you know, trying to defend myself, but right. I don't think it's necessarily a comment on whether or not the book is good. <laughs> same, as, same as a script in Hollywood. There are scripts in Hollywood that are brilliant that don't get produced because they just... For whatever they reason, they, they yeah they won't they just won't sell. So right. this was I think a same the same kind of thing. So, but I believed in the story and I loved the story. I wrote a goddamn novel. I thought I could just go throw it in the trash, you know. So so I put it out, and the fact that people like it has been a relief because it, you know, because I was sitting there the whole time being like, well, maybe there's just something wrong that I'm just not seeing because every every writer has a blind spot. Mm-hmm. You know, my instincts were that no, it's. It's well done. I, it was my, in my estimation, the best thing I'd ever written. Wow. And, uh, and people really liked it and have responded to it. So I was like, okay, all right. All right. I was, I was happy that I wasn't incredibly misguided and just had no bearing whatsoever on the, what my wheat was from my chafe or chaff. <laughs> yeah. Separating the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. I'm curious how much of this book was written before the lights went out for you? And how much after, and and how much did that influence the story or the the process? Okay, so I was two chapters away from the first draft when I suffered a massive brain hemorrhage. That was December of 2018. Yeah, I remember that. That was terrifying I, uh, for me. Just be, we had talked, and like I'm a huge fan of yours, and so it was harrowing, like to to hear silence from you for weeks. I'm like, where the hell is Drew? For a long time, there was sort of a, an informal gag order among the Deadspin staff. We were all still at Deadspin at the time. Uh, and Megan Greenwell, who was my boss, also helped save my life that night. Asked people to, to keep quiet, um, even as, you know, sort of rumors bandied about and things like that. And you posted was, a, a tweet that was just terribly wrong, right? That's right. I was I was high as shit on fentanyl. <laughs> and I had my phone and I had my uh, I had I had my Twitter feed open. So I was like, well, I'll just correct it for the record. I got all the details wrong because yeah. I was still high and I was still hallucinating from the drugs. Yeah, like the and hospital wife, was on rails and shit, right? And, yeah, yeah. My wife was like, "What are you doing?" So she took the phone and deleted the tweets and said, "No, Drew doesn't know what the hell he's talking about." And then I wasn't allowed to have the phone for much longer. So, <laughs> so I had to, I had to come out of that fog. I had to get out of the hospital, which took. I was in the coma for two weeks. Was in the hospital for another three weeks. I think that's right, three or four weeks. Then got home, then had to recover for another month at home before I could get back to work at Deadspin, even though I started writing a story of my hemorrhage in sure. that time. Right. And then I could finally get back to finishing the first draft of Point B. So I was able to do that. But what I had learned, you know, or, and what I am still learning from my time recovering and going half deaf and losing a lot of my sensory abilities, really none of that went into the book. Some of my thoughts about death went into it, but I have a lot more more thoughts about that I'm going to write about uh, later on. But no, I it was really just that I, I had come back from death and uh, and I had managed to survive, which was good because I really wanted to finish the book because <laughs> I really liked the book. Yeah. So then I finished it and I was very, very happy that I had gotten to live 
to finish it. I mean, I was glad I got to live for a lot, a lot of other fantastic reasons. I got to see my kids again and all that. My, be with my wife again and see my parents again and all that, all that shit. But it was nice to be able to have finished it off. And I was very, very proud of it. And, you know, I was summarily disappointed when publishers weren't as enthused about it as I was. But then I, I came to accept the fact that it was still a novel. I had still written it. I still loved it. And the fact that they didn't necessarily cotton to it didn't take away from right. the experience or the pleasure I got writing it. I just didn't get, you know, I just didn't get a million dollar advance. So tough shit. Well, I mean, the hard thing is like, yeah, that's not a reflection of you. It feels like it. Um, it always does. You know, like I'll well, see, yeah, pe- I'll see writing's, people. Yeah. Writing's personal. So, and the more personal it is, the more you take it personally when people ignore it or reject it or hate it out. <laughs> Yeah, I'm always amazed at the shows that I that I do that I feel the most personal connection to. A lot of them will just fall flat. And then ones where I'm sort of like half engaged and, you know, don't really give a shit or I'm like I kind of brick that interview a little bit. People are like, "Man, that one you did was so great." And I go, "Okay, I can't fucking control any of this. Like I have I have no sense necessarily for what's going to land. You say this is the best book you've written." Yet publishers go, "Nah, eh, I don't know. We're we're not going to do it." So you have to go right. the self-publishing route. That's it it's impossible to predict, so I'm glad that you got it out on your own terms. How has that been? And before we get there, I did have one question I wanted to ask you with regard to uh, the brain hemorrhage. Did that affect like the way you write, your capacity, like how easily the words come? Is that a lingering effect, or was that something that kind of came back to you like riding a bike? Uh, that all came back right away. Oh, cool. All right. Like while I was in the hospital, I was like – because I write my head a lot, you know, like – like before I even start typing, most of it has been thought out, and none of those thought processes were were really disturbed by the by the injury. There's there's very specific reasons for that, um, because the part of the brain that controls all of that was not injured in the fall. Oh, interesting. Whereas part of my brain that controlled other functions very much was injured in the fall. So you know, I woke up, I was still me, and I still you know had all my sense of identity and all my comprehension skills and all that stuff. But, you know, like, my fucking ear didn't work. Right. <laughs> uh, the only thing I, I would say is that I use a thesaurus a bit more often than I used to. But I'm not terribly, like, ashamed of that. Like, it's fine. Like, <laughs> if a word doesn't come to me, I'm, I don't mind cheating. That's okay. Dude, you're a writer, okay? Like, if you're a writer and you don't have a thesaurus nearby or you can't right-click the word, you know, in Microsoft Word, what are we, what are we even doing? No, I don't think that's a big deal either. Yeah, I actually didn't used to use it that much because if you go over my uh, if you go over my back catalog, I do not exactly have the most expansive vocabulary, you know. And that's not even if you count, you know, all the times that I swear and say eh, "fuck this" and shit that. Right. I just keep it very clear and direct, and so there's not a lot of you know, there's just not a lot of fancy verbiage in there, even though sometimes the situation calls for it. Like I don't really think that among writers, my vocabulary is terribly. Uh, well, look, look, I'm trying to find a word and I can't fucking find it. So there you go. Well, okay. So, I mean, a a case in point here to me, it's like, I I read two books back to back. One of them was Chuck Klosterman. And following that, I read Born Standing Up by Steve Martin. And Steve Martin uses a very Spartan style. It's, it's very direct. It's very to the point. And I juxtapose that against reading Klosterman, who is, you know, one of the weirdest and most floral sort of oddly vocabularyed writers out there. Very erudite. Yeah. And I remember thinking, I'm like, 
okay, there's brilliance in this simplicity because I used to try and uh, I aspire to that more sort of florid style. And then I go, wait a minute. There's something beautiful about being able to say what you want to say and do it with such economy in the way that Steve Martin does in Born Standing Up. So to me, for you, like your writing is still always very evocative to me, and I've always connected with it. And so you describing yourself as not having a great vocabulary, I thought, you know, if I were to level criticism at Drew, I don't think it would be about vocabulary. <laughs> you know what I mean? <clears throat> and so- Yeah, no, I, I do. I like The most important thing when I read other writers is that there are ideas in there. You know, just that there's, you know, I don't think anyone, it's a big problem in novels where you see the writing. You know, you, you can just tell that they're trying to impress you with their writing when it's much more important that they're just trying to get an idea across. So I've read uh, some of Bourne standing up and he's telling stories, but they're, and like you said, it's very simple language, but there are very, very interesting ideas behind it. Like when he says, like he says, I never asked a waitress for her number the first time. <laughs> It was always the second time. Or I always think of there's a famous uh, Margaret Atwood quote, which was, men are afraid women will laugh at them. Yeah. Women are afraid men will kill them. So there are no fancy words in that proverb, right? It's all very simple, basic language. But the idea, you know, there's history in that yeah. idea. And there's just profound truths in that idea. And that's what you want to read when you read shit. And you want to read a joke or two on well, totally. Well, and it's like Hemingway. Is it Hemingway who uh, said, I can write a, a story in six words? Well, yeah, he had the famous six-word story, Baby Shoes, for sale, Baby Shoes, number one. Yeah. Like, that's a great story in six words. So, I mean, to your yeah. point, yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely right. So, getting back to my original question before I digress there, I'm a professional at this, can you tell, um, is... Uh, how has the self-publishing process been? Uh, I know you said recently in an interview you've learned basically nothing about it. But, uh, yeah, how's it been? Is it is it challenging? Is it what you expected? And how does it compare against going through a more traditional, like when you were at Penguin? There's pluses and minuses to it. I mean, the plus is that I have total control over it, right? And, like, if there's a, if there's a typo in it, and there were, like, the, the copy you get will probably have a typo or two in it. I can correct those and then republish them and not miss a beat. Once, if you work with a traditional publisher and there's a typo in your book, well, there's a typo in your book forever, unless it's a bestseller and there are subsequent printings, then they can fix it. Not with the kind of turnaround time that you would get from Amazon. That's like, you know, 24 hours. So that's good. Um, The bad thing is that obviously I've only been able to go through Amazon for this, which, you know, Amazon's evil and, particularly evil at the moment. So, you know, a lot of readers have been like, can I buy it somewhere else? And I'm trying my best, but it's a, it's a little bit difficult to navigate. And then going through all of the different publishing platforms that they use is its own sort of horror show. Because like, like for example, like I had to format the book at Kindle Direct Publishing, KDP, and I had to make sure that like all the pages looked right. And I almost published it before I was looking at the, the preview. And I was like, wait a second, there are no page numbers on this one. Oh God. So I had to pay, do the page numbers myself. And I had to, I had to make sure that the margins, the bleed were correct all by myself and it would reject it time and again. And then also I had a designer named Dennis Padua do the cover and do the cover jacket. And Amazon would kept kicking that back or sometimes it would accept it, but like everything was off center and looked like shit anyway. So right. you would have to redo that. And they didn't necessarily give you like specific parameters to make sure it was foolproof. 
Because I don't think they like you doing your own cover. I think they want you to do their, own, their template so it looks like an Amazon product. So all that stuff, I, you know, it would have been better if I had taught myself that stuff before self-publishing the book. But in other ways, there's no way to do that without self-publishing the book first. Right. No, I mean, that, that makes perfect sense. It's uh, you're, you're kind of building the plane while flying it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in, in that way, you know, if you read The Postmortal, that was my first novel, and you can tell I'm learning to write a novel as I'm writing it. Hmm. So it, with this book, I knew how to write the novel. The novel was good. But the process of production, you can tell I'm still getting my sea legs in terms of production as it's being produced and as it's going out to people. Yeah, that's that's a weird thing. I mean, I've, I've had some friends self-publish some books. It's weird to me because it's almost like – you know, let's say you're a plumber, right? And you know plumbing and but then all of a sudden you're tasked with building a house. And you right. You have to do all the drywall, you have to do all the masonry work, you have to do all the electricity, and you're going, "Holy shit, this is like there's a lot that goes into this." And so you managing, you know, the cover art as you said and the the bleed and so on and so forth. It's weird. It's it's like the old Mitch Hedberg joke, you know, people always ask when you're a comedian, "Yeah, but can you write?" He's like, you never ask a chef, okay, you're a chef and you can cook, but can you farm? Right, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it's it's the uh, the other thing is that when those mistakes are there, when you're self-publishing, they're more glaring because there's no one else to blame. I think one or two of my published, well, all my books are published, but my the ones that were done with publishers have a typo somewhere in them. And you can pass it buy a million copy editors and have a million friends read it. And somehow a typo still gets in there because typos are annoying. Like that. Mm -hmm. But you know, at least when it goes to a publishing house, you're sort of absolved because even though you are sort you, you own the book and you have the final cut mm -hmm. over it, you know, it still passes through enough eyes. Where you can say, Oh wow. You know, I really wish someone had caught someone had <laughs> caught. That. I did, by the way, I did not say that publicly. I didn't throw it by the bus. But, no, of course not. Um, but when you're self publishing, even though I had friends look at it and give me sort of a formal copy ads and all that stuff, it really fell on me. I was ultimately responsible for everything. So when, you know, the, the cover is a bit off or there's a typo, particularly in the beginning, uh, uh, which there are not, it gives a bad impression. It gives, it gives people all the more reason to think that it's an amateur effort and not a professional effort. Right. Well, I mean, at this point, I think you've, you've got some level of credibility given that you have all these books, you know, behind you. I would hope that some of that would be abated um, just yeah, by well, virtue of your resume. I think so, because, you know, the people that bought the book first were longtime readers yeah. were more inclined to be forgiving about that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, they end up being lab rats for what what are basically very superficial mistakes yeah. that thankfully will not reach more foreign eyes, but the book is still good either way. So. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, like it's there. And so it's funny when I got laid off and I think I, I can't remember if I told this story to you the first time we talked, but I had a friend, he was writing a book about walking the Camino Santiago in Spain. And so he gave it to me. He's like, Hey, would you read through it? Give me some feedback and all that. So like, this was long before he was publishing it. And that was great because I knew I was getting laid off, so I had shit else to do. They're taking your projects from you. And sure. So I just sit there with this manuscript open, you know, making notes, like just writing things down on this paper. People would walk by and be like, wow, he's really busy. Like he's he's got a lot going on there. <laughs> and I'm like, 
This is this is delightful. Like for a corporate job, if if anyone can give you a manuscript that you just want to edit and do it like you know in real life, not necessarily on the computer, people will think you're busy as hell. It's terrific. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You do that on a plane. Yeah, you can't fly a plane right now, but you, when you do it on a plane next. Yeah, totally. I was down in Arizona when the quarantine really started happening, so I knew I had to fly again in a few days, and I I can tell you that was that was harrowing. Um, knowing I'd have to get back on a plane with my kids. I was in Europe at the end of February. Oh, Jesus. As everything was, was coming to a head. Oh, I remember that, yeah. I was on assignment for Road and Trek, and I said to the editor, I was like, I was like, are we sure this is going to be all right? And he said, I think so. And I was like, okay, all right, I'll do it. And I go, and everything is relatively normal, except the flight from London to Barcelona Half the people are wearing masks. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of pronounced, but everyone was still on the play. And then when I got back, two weeks later, I think March 11th is now the target date that everyone has pegged for when like shit got real. That was the day I landed in Arizona. Yeah. So then I texted I texted the editor. I was like, I cannot believe we got I got in and out of there under the wire. Holy crap. <laughs> I have not been symptomatic since then, but I was like, yeah. it's one of those things where you're like, oh, right. like as much as I have had very intimate near-death experiences uh, <laughs> go on yeah, it's, one, it's one of those ones where you, you know you walk away from the car crash going, yeah for sure uh well speaking of so you mentioned you you were on assignment for road and trek has that come out yet it has not come out yet yeah. and in fact i had filed a story that i intended to write before that march 11th sort of chicken real thing and of course then a couple weeks later because I hadn't heard from the editor, with good reason, you know, a couple weeks later, I was like, I'm probably going to have to rewrite this. Huh? And he was like, yeah, 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 we rewrite it. I had to do follow-up interviews and all that stuff, and then refile this week. And it, it, ought, to, it ought to go. But, I mean, I think there that journalism has had a lot of instances like that where there were people who would file things prior to the, the virus outbreak, and the virus is everything now, so it can't not right. be part of can't not be part of those stories. And you can sort of tell, hopefully not in my story, but you can tell in other stories where it's been grafted in or where it's just been outright ignored because it was filed too early and they didn't want to do it. Yeah, totally. It's uh, it's like if you ever if you ever want a morbid exercise that's kind of interesting, go back and read newspapers from September 10th, 2001. You know- oh, yeah. No, I mean, I was living in New York at the time. I remember, like, that summer, like, the biggest thing was, like, Lizzie Grubman hitting a bunch of club goers with an SUV. Right. And that was like the mo- biggest scandal in the entire city. Yeah. Like that summer. And then just, and it was, I mean, it's, it's, it's a thing. Sure. Um, I, I didn't live in New York, but you know, uh, that was, that was trumped pretty like in, in a way that, that you, you can't even account for. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was, uh, right after nine 11 or the onion did a commemorative issue that everyone read. And what the headlines was like a shattered nation you're insecure about stupid bullshit again. Yeah. And I feel that headline right now to a T. Oh, to just care about stupid bullshit. I, I would kill for that, particularly as it pertains to sports. Yep. Um, I found myself watching a spike ball tournament the other day on some station called Stadium. And uh, are you familiar with spike ball? Yes. It's Laura Wagner's favorite sport. <laughs> no shit, really. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, and I was watching it. And I'm like, this is, you know, this is fine. But uh, it's not exactly filling the void for me. So I was curious, since Deadspin ended, you mentioned Road and Trek. You're writing for Gen Magazine. You, yes. You uh, picked up some gigs at SF Gate. Yeah, I'm, I have, I'm doing a few things for SF Gate. The Fun Bag is 
uh, has a halfway home advice. Advice, so it's yeah. There every week, and then working on another book app for after point B. So, like in terms of the greater economy, I'm doing very well, almost to the point where I don't, I feel guilty about it. You know, I, mm. I feel like, you know, obviously we're we're giving money to to local charities and and people who need it and all that stuff. You know, I'm in quarantine right now and everything's going fine. We're bored out of our fucking minds. <laughs> but yeah. then, you know, it's never it's never too far from our consciousness. You know, past these walls, things are not going so well. Well, I mean, I was going to ask you about that because you've said that Deadspin was the best job you ever had. Yes. And so how is it going back to the to the freelancing world? How, how has that been treating you? It sounds like it's going well, but how do the rhythms suit you and how are you feeling about it? It's going well in terms of work and flow and all that stuff. I mean, I think the thing that we realized about Deadspin, or at least I realized about Deadspin, was that you know once I left, and before that, I have to remind you, and I had written about this before, that four months before Deadspin collapsed, I was going to leave. I was going to go to Sports Illustrated. I was yeah. going to do all my Deadspin work over there uncensored. Um, wow. And of course, that, that fell apart when SI fell apart. You know, I had that thought in my pocket when I did quit Deadspin that, okay, if SI was willing to do this back before SI, you know, got, yeah, kind of imploded, got eaten from within, maybe yeah. there's a place for me elsewhere. And what I, what I realized was that, that I needed Deadspin as much, if not more than Deadspin needed. It was the right place. It was the right audience. It was the right colleagues. That's not to take away from Vice because a lot of my Deadspin, former Deadspin colleagues are at Vice permanently right now. Right, yeah, like Mar- um, Marchman's there, and who else yeah. is there? Marchman runs there. Wagner is there. Yeah, Susie Van Karam, uh is there. Just a lot of just a lot of Deadspin alums are there. You know, I, like I love, like I said, I, I love doing the fun bag there. But obviously, Deadspin just was the best. Deadspin was the best. The, although I will say, double dipping with GQ at the time, <laughs> when GQ was like, you know, it's like being handed the keys to the fucking Ferrari. That was <laughs> that was a nice that was a nice side gig. Yeah, for sure. Um, I did not realize until Deadspin was gone. And by the way, I thought you guys did make the right move in all quitting and solidarity like that. Based on what I read, based on the sort of extensive reporting done by Laura Wagner, um, it, it made sense to me. But I did not realize until recently, anytime you guys do sort of uh, unnamed temporary sports blog, just right. what a Deadspin-shaped hole I actually have in my life, which <clears throat> I still follow all you guys on Twitter, but I miss – even just inconsequential bullshit, like one of my favorite Deadspin posts of all time was Tom Lee posting this Instagram video of Yasiel Puig being terrified by thunder. And right. that, that to me, that, that is still one of the funniest things I think I've ever read. Well, and, that's the thing is that we, and we, we talk about this ourselves, is that there are enough stupid blog posts on the internet anymore. No, that used and to be like the whole reason for the internet. And now it's largely gone. That's right, and as a freelancer, you can't pitch that. No. You can't, you can't pitch butthole eating at Lions tailgate <laughs> to the Wall Street Journal or something like that. It just doesn't doesn't work. It, they need a hardier, bigger idea and something more consequential. But the internet is much better when it's dealing with stuff that is extremely inconsequential, and we have the freedom to do that. Yeah. Of course, we have the freedom to do it in our in our pop up sites, and and also all the other former Gawker Gawker media sites had free reign to do that as well. We're very good at it, you know, and for that to slowly erode has not been very fun to watch. Vice is very good at it still. And there are a couple of the sites that still do it well, but like the days of like, you know, places like Holy Taco existing are kind of gone. 
it really does make me sad. And so I, I follow all you guys on Twitter still. So I'll just, I'll check up on Roth or I'll check up on Barry Pacheski or Tom sure. Lee or whoever. It's just not the same. And what's the funniest part to me is, and this will segue into a question, but I did not realize that, uh, cause I don't visit Deadspin anymore. I, I hadn't been there. It was just a husk for like months. First right. of all, I haven't, I haven't gone back even when they rebooted. There was no point. And so that I was going to ask you if you'd gone back, but the thing was, I didn't realize that I still followed Deadspin on Facebook. And so then new articles started like showing up in my feed. I go, wait, what the hell? Oh, right. Okay. They probably got new authors. And, uh, I was wondering if, if you knew any of the writers or if you'd had any interaction with any of them. No, nothing. I don't know any of them. I haven't interacted with any of them. Uh, I'm like you. I didn't realize that I had forgotten to unfollow Deadspin on Twitter until, until they tweeted a new thing. And every tweet they've done since then has gotten ratioed. But I unfollowed it, but I unfollowed it not like, like out of defiance or anything like that. Like, right. The people who destroyed Deadspin clearly don't give a shit about what I think about Deadspin presently. Um, clearly. I mean, they, they wanted to move you into your own sort of subsite, right? Or something like yeah, that. They wanted to put like the fun bag at Lifehacker and then like splice it over to Deadspin or something. Oh, Jesus. But anyway, I didn't bother reading it because I knew it would be, I knew it probably wouldn't be very good. Somewhat to my dismay, it would be better if Deadspin were still good and there were still good sites. But the other thing was that, you know, I left the site. It was my decision. I don't regret it. I don't want to spend the rest of my career just yearning for it because uh, that's just a waste of fucking time. Because I've been at, in prior careers, I've been at places that live in the past. Like I worked mm. at an ad agency where you would walk into the hall every day and video footage of the dead founder of the agency giving speeches would be playing on a loop. And it's like, it's just such a colossal waste of time Yeah. if you're not moving forward. So I, and I think the rest of us who left are, are much more interested in moving forward because it's just better for our, our mental health. I think, yeah. you know, when certain places have gone away, the revisionism it gets to be a bit much, you know, like, like Grant, there isn't as much Grantland revisionist history as there used to be, but for a while it was like, people treated it like the fucking New York times had collapsed. And I was like, right. <laughs> yeah. Which is funny. And you know, some of that, some of that sort of institutional fart sniffing, I think, uh, persists at the ringer, but of course, uh, but course. you know, that's, that's sort of Simmons's brand and it's been fun watching all you deadspin guys. This, this will go up. This will be like a week old uh, by the time this goes up. But you guys all dunking on Simmons like, don't make me do homework for your shitty tweets. Well, yeah, because, I mean, it was always – Albert Ego always said it, it was that everything everything Simmons writes is just within the frame of reference of his own mind. So it's like there's really no outside world, you know? And, yeah. you know, I'm as egotistical as the next person, but I do recognize that, like, you know, I'm not going to be the person to be like, why am I the only one who knows is this Trump fella isn't very trustworthy? You know, like shit like that. Or yeah. It's just like every thought is original and every idea is new to the motherfucker. Yeah. And it's all it's all pristine. It's all, it, you know, it, it, it's yeah, it's all unconflicted. It's like so the equivalent of my life to when you were at uh, Kissing Susie Colbert was I created this site called the Crew Jones Society which is named after the main character of this forgotten 80s BMX movie called Rad. I remember Rad. <laughs> and so we love that. So we, we made this daily humor site. But that would be like 
me asking everyone to remember all the takes I had during that time. You're you're absolutely right about not living in the past. I I'm more excited about moving forward, and you know this this podcast is a part of it because I've been doing it now for six years. But it's hard sometimes not to overindulge in your own nostalgia. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm also you know I'm in my I'm in my mid forties now, so you know I'm I'm at the point where like my philosophy was always that it's always more excited about things I'm going to do than things I've done. Like that's the way it ought to be. But from time to time, like I'll toke up and think like, oh, that was a nice thing I did today. Or, yeah. you know, particularly now with Point B out, and I'm not saying this just as a gratuitous plug, but like like I like to think about how much I liked the book and how nice it was. I'm like, that was, that was pretty good. I don't do that actually with the other books I've written <laughs> because it was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but it's nice. it's nice sometimes to pause as you get older it's nice to pause and look back for a second and say that was nice and then you go forward it's okay to reflect a little bit but you you can absolutely end up up your own ass so yeah no i mean one more question about deadspin and then then we can let it go but i'm curious you guys all you're all still very close you all come together and do the unnamed temporary sports blog was that vibe in place kind of before you had your brain injury or did people kind of coalesce around that? Because, you know, you talk about the role that, that Barry had in keeping your head upright and, you know, who was trying to call your wife and, you know, riding the ambulance and Megan Greenwell uh, advocating right. for you with the doctors and all that. Was that sort of camaraderie that strong before that or did it come together after? No, no, it was always there. I cannot tell you, you know, I don't I don't have a good handle on how it changed after I got hurt. Obviously when I came back everyone was happy to have me back and and we we picked up where we left off. But obviously I was in a coma for 2 weeks so I don't I was not there to witness the emotional impact my injury had not just on uh, the Deadspin staff but on my friends and on my family and all that stuff. I was told right. that in fact. And we were all brought much uh, you know I, I think I think we were all brought closer not necessarily by my injury um, but by how we all left the site, obviously. Sure. Um, because uh, when we quit the day, well, we all quit over the span of a couple of days. I was right. in the middle of the pack. I was not among the first. It was when Tom Lay quit that I decided to quit. Why, why was we, what was that? Was that the trigger for you, or and what was it about Tom yes. quitting? I just I was unhappy about Barry uh, getting fired, but I thought maybe we could maybe withstand it. And then when Tom said, no, I'm, I'm going to resign too, it would, became clear to me that that nothing about the site was going to be tenable. It was all going to get torn down whether we liked it or not. Mm. And the nice thing was that we all sort of realized, I think unconsciously, that we couldn't do the site if we couldn't all do it together. I don't think my, I don't think my brush with death was what created that bond. I thought that bond was always there. I'm sure... It played a hand in it. I mean, I'm sure it, you know, the bond was one of the reasons that, that people were so kind to me after the fact. And, and the reason that, um, you know, everyone came to visit me in the hospital and the reason I, I owe those people my life and the reason that they were so, so attached to me, it sounds very egotistical, but no, they're my friends, you know, they're my good friends. No, dude. And based on all the anecdotes that they all give about you, you were always there, like you're, you're, you became sort of the elder statesman of the site, and 
you know, one of the anchors of the site, but you were always willing to give insight and feedback and support for all of these folks. Like those stories come out again and again. I, I think, was it Greenwell who compiled all of them? Uh, yeah, people did it in, when they guest hosted the fun bag and stuff like that. And people oh, yeah. About the rotating although, host. Yeah, I remember that. Although I'll, I'll tell you that when I started at Deadspin, well, first of all, it was a two-man operation with Will Leach and Rick Chandler. So I was just a dude remotely parachuting in to do a column. And I always had that sort of Jackman Sens philosophy about where I get mine and I do my thing and everybody leaves me the fuck alone and and whatever. It changed over a decade. It just, you know, I, I became close to the site. The site became closer to me. And, you know, eventually we became uh, inextricably linked in ways both professional and, and personal, in ways that I didn't expect. So, you know, I, I think I grew into that, into my role at the site. Yeah, I certainly wasn't that way at the beginning, but it's been. But I'm glad I grew into the role. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, when evolution like that happens, it's it's usually not a, a forced kind of thing, um, and if it is, it's it's obviously transparent that it is. So yeah, because we all could, you know, after we all quit, we could have just said, "See you later, bye." Mm-hmm. We don't do that. We we're still we have our own little slack room. We hang out in uh, all day long and. And it's just uh, we're going from the site, but the site's not going from us. So, or at least the spirit of it isn't. Right. I think that makes good sense. All right. I don't want to keep you too long. So let's talk. Uh, let's wrap up by talking about the book. So it's avail- yeah. It's available on Amazon. And That's right. I was the guy who asked you on Twitter if this was inspired by your love of big teleportation in that uh, Reddit AMA that you uh, you did at one point. Like, what was your favorite big? You know, from the fun bag. Uh, yes, that's right. And you said, not directly, but you thought of it kind of midway. So uh, can you give us the elevator pitch? Just without doing that, I feel like I'm doing a dereliction of duty here. Yeah, I can do that. So it's it's about a uh, it's about a world where you can teleport using your, your phone, simply by using an app. You can teleport anywhere you want, which is a great hook. But, you know, what if you – well, first of all, it sounds great, but there are some imminent dangers involved. Kind of uh, like partic- Kind of like the ability to stop aging. Yeah, particularly, you know, and it's so it's it can be particularly dangerous for people who are vulnerable, people who are young, like our protagonist, Anna. And so in some ways, uh, they have to be protected by being places where they cannot teleport, uh, particularly uh, the school Truscan Academy, where our, our hero, Anna Huff, has to go and can't teleport. So the whole thing is based on, OK, well, everyone in the world can teleport, but you can't. How would you feel about that? And what would you do? You probably want to find out, figure out a way to teleport again. Right. And that's what Anna Huff is tasked with having to do because she's fallen in love with somebody. Wow. That sounds cool. So, I mean, at its heart, a love story. Yeah, it's a love story. I mean, you will not think that when you read the first few pages because it's very intense and disturbing and stuff like that. But, yeah, ultimately, it's just a teenage love story. That's fine with me. I, I love um, – it's one of the reasons I love the song Hey Ya. Which is like, and I'll bet you get this comparison all the time. But um, the song "Hey Ya" is the happiest sad song I, I've ever heard. You know, at yeah. at its heart, it's it's about uh, about how hard it is to find love, but it's cloaked in this sort of party anthem. So if there's a love story cloaked in a bunch of disturbing imagery, I'm down for that. I'm in right from the get go, and mine should be here in a few days. So yeah, no, my my favorite artist is Bob Mould. And uh, all of his songs, all the lyrics are impossibly sad, but all the melodies are absolutely soaring, big yeah. anthemic melodies. And it was described as beauty torn from violence. And Ooh. that's what I that's what I love about him. 
And so if I was going to write a teenage love story, you better believe it was going to have a lot of exciting shit. Well, that's, that's why I love the punk band No Use for a Name. Uh, they, yeah. had, they had a lead singer called Tony Sly, and Tony Sly's lyrics were so achingly sad, but it was just this like face-shredding like punk rock. Just Yeah, like, you need that. Oh, I, yeah, that's, that's the way I kind of relate to the world, so I'm all in on that. One last question. I would be derelict if I didn't ask you this, too. Are you wearing the robe right now? No, no. Okay. No. no. All I, right. uh, I, I save that for when I'm deeply, deeply jolly at night or, or for weekend mornings. That's okay. it. All right. Fair enough. Um, you understand why I would feel compelled to ask that. Uh, I have no doubt. Okay. So uh, now's the time on the show when we do plugs. Where can we find Point B? Where can we find you? Anything you want to plug at all right now, please do it. Uh, Point B right now is available only at Amazon. Kindle and paperback. The pages are not linked yet because I'm still learning the adventures of self-publishing. But if you search my name in Point B, you will be able to find it. Also, read me at Gen Magazine, which is uh, part of Medium. And then read the fun bag over advice. There you go. Fantastic. I will plug to all of that in the companion blog piece on johnofalltrades.us, as well as in the show notes if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or any of a billion other podcatchers I can't be bothered to learn. Drew, uh, what a thrill, man. And so I didn't tell you this. This is episode 250 of the show. And so nice, uh, nice milestone episode. And uh, I'm glad to see you're in good health. Uh, I'm glad to see you're remaining successful. And I can't wait to read the new book. I wish you continued success. Thanks, John. I appreciate it, man. And that wraps up episode 250 of the John of All Trades podcast with Drew McGarry. What a great chat. What a great dude. And what an amazing book that I am only part of the way through, but I cannot wait to sit down and finish. Be sure to find Drew at Vice, at Gen Magazine, and on Twitter. All those links are at the companion blog piece, johnofalltrades.us. That's J-O-N of alltrades.us. You can also follow me on social media, at J-O-A-T-Pod. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram, all under the same handle, J-O-A-T-Pod. If you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or any other podcatcher, please leave us a rating, leave us a review. For some reason... That helps us gain visibility. How? No one knows, and no one will tell me. But I appreciate the love, nevertheless. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. This is the flagship. I also produce other shows for other organizations. It's a fantastic gig. I promise, if you've got a story to tell, I will help you sound tremendous. D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. I'm back here next week with a brand new show. I've already got a book already super excited about it i told you earlier this year i was going to work my ass off to bring you great content especially during quarantine i think we all need it i hope you're enjoying it as much as i am producing it for you so until i hear you again stay well stay safe say goodnight That's good, Johnny.